This episode discusses suicide and suicidal ideation, and some people might find it disturbing. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please contact your local suicide prevention hotline. In the United States, you can now dial 988. Veterans can press 1 after dialing 988 to connect directly to the Veterans Crisis Lifeline. In early 2022, I was on a reporting trip in the town of Rome, Georgia, to investigate the base. I've been to Rome before, and I remember that there was this statue of Nathan Bedford Forrest. Well, like, what, 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 were, what were we just doing? Well, I was just about, I was trying to take us to the Nathan Bedford Forrest statue. Forrest was the first major leader of the Ku Klux Klan. He'd been a cavalry commander in the Confederacy during the Civil War. And he was known for leading a particularly brutal massacre of Union soldiers, hundreds of whom were black and many who had already surrendered. There's a bunch of statues. Like you were just saying yeah. as we drove in, like yeah. if you Google Nathan Bedford Ford statue. They're everywhere. These statues, they were calculated in their messaging. They were used to intimidate black communities and to remind them, we're watching you. After the war ended, Forrest links up with a group of angry Confederate veterans. They'd formed a paramilitary white supremacist terrorist organization, the Klan. And they wanted someone like him with military credentials to lead it. And so Forrest became the first grand wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. The KKK has terrorized black communities across the South for decades and still does. They've been responsible for hundreds of murders and dozens of bombings. They're the most famous domestic terror organization in the history of this country. And this statue in the center town was put up decades after the Civil War. More than 400 Confederate monuments like this were put up around that time. These are not war memorials. They're violent reminders of white supremacy. And now, a century and a half after the Civil War, I'm in the car with one of my producers, Ashley, and we're trying to find the statue in town. It's gone. They got rid of it. They apparently voted to get rid of it, and then they got rid of it. They took it down. Turns out the statue is now on display at a local museum. Doesn't surprise me that people wanted it taken down, that's for sure. No, it makes me feel like things are, like, changing in, in small Rome. Do you know what I mean? Like, Let's not forget, this is, we are in Marjorie Taylor Greene territory. This is her, this is her district. The generations of black and Hispanic men, do you want to know what holds them down? Gangs. Being in gangs and dealing drugs. That's, that's not a, a white person thing. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a far-right congresswoman. She's known for stoking conspiracy theories like QAnon and for spouting outright racist tropes. But that doesn't make me a racist because I say leave the statue up there. If I were black people today and I walked by one of those statues, I would be so proud. And I guess I'm just wondering, as we as a society remove those statues, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But like groups like the base or Adam Waffen, right, are proliferating. Mm -hmm. I think it also shows you that getting rid of statues like that also doesn't solve the problem. Like, while I think we can all agree it's a good thing, it's certainly not the uh, antidote to this kind of poison, because this shit is everywhere. And like, it's, it's, it's hiding in plain sight. The story of Nathan Bedford Forrest is the story of a veteran becoming a terrorist. And this origin story, 
It's actually central to understanding violent far-right extremism throughout this country's history. Veterans have long played an outsized role in far-right extremist groups, from the Klan to today. I report on this a lot, and invariably, I get lots of pushback, because Americans often think any critique of the military and veterans is unpatriotic, which makes this kind of reporting especially difficult. But listen, this is my job, and so despite the heat I'll inevitably get, there are two questions that I really want to answer. What is the connection between far-right extremism and the U.S. military, and what's the military doing about it? From Vice News and Gimlet, I'm Ben Maku, and this is American Terror. Episode 6, The Pipeline. I think that there's a couple of things that we have to be really clear about. One is that this phenomenon of joining white power groups represents a tiny, tiny fraction of the veteran community as a whole. This is Professor Kathleen Ballou. We've heard from her earlier in this series. She's been writing and researching about the connections between the U.S. military and far-right extremism for decades. If we want to talk about the legacy of the veterans of the war on terror, we wouldn't start with the white power movement. However, if we reverse perspective and think about the impacts on white power violence, we can't overstate how huge, how big the impact those guys can have when they join groups like this. I want to be very clear here. As of last year, there were roughly 18 million veterans in the U.S., and only a very small number of them are involved in extremism. But, Ballou says, the small number of vets and military personnel who have been involved in far-right extremism over the years, they've got an outsized influence. Because they bring tactics and training and weapons and materiel and all kinds of things to these groups that just enormously escalate capacity for violence, usually violence against civilians. Another expert I've talked to added that having veterans or active service members in these groups allows them to use the language of patriotism for recruitment and credibility. This is not overzealous patriotism. This is an anti-democracy terrorist movement. Now, I'm not saying that vets or military personnel are necessarily more inclined to embrace extremism. But what is true is that veterans are targeted for recruitment and radicalization by far-right extremist groups. Because neo-Nazi extremist groups like the base or Atomwaffen, the hyper-violent accelerationist groups I've been reporting on, they're not looking for thousands of people who are willing to march in the streets. They want a handful of people who can shoot like a soldier, know their way around bomb-making like a soldier. Now, if you want to do that, then military um, and police are a really great recruitment pool because active duty and veteran and police and prison guard, those guys come with a set of skills, tactical training, access to weapons, expertise, munitions. So we have to think about the way that underground groups are trying to recruit and utilize veteran and active duty personnel. And the fact is, this is what's been happening for a long time. Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing, Eric Robert Rudolph and the bombing of the Olympic Games in Atlanta, both of them were vets. And now, the problem, it's growing. 
there aren't a lot of studies and the data is limited. But a report released last year shows that in 2020, domestic terror plots and attacks peaked to its highest number since at least 1994, when this data was first collected. And two-thirds of those involved far-right extremists. And when it comes to the military, the FBI told the Department of Defense that, in 2020, it opened 143 investigations into current service members or veterans. And about half were connected to domestic extremism. So, in recent years, there's been an increase in the percentage of domestic terrorist plots and attacks involving people with military backgrounds. And we see those surges um, in membership aligning with the aftermath of every American war. Going back to the Civil War and the formation of the Klan, and of course, the leadership of Confederate veteran turned KKK Grand Wizard, Nathan Bedford Forrest. What most people have learned about in high school history, if they've learned about the Klan, it's classically anti-Black and anti-Semitic, but it also has highly localized content that seeks to exploit tensions in particular communities and places. And then the pattern continues. More people joining extremist groups after each war. So it follows the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. But with Vietnam, things start to shift in an important way. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. You see people that are dead for nothing, and you see people who are going to spend the rest of their lives maimed, you know, with a foot missing or a leg missing or maybe two legs. And you just ask yourself, what's it for? What, what did this man's life accomplish? Before the Vietnam War, there were Klansmen, neo-Nazis, radical tax protesters. And these groups were sometimes ideologically at odds. So like the Klan, they wanted to ensure that the U.S. government was run by white people, while neo-Nazis, they wanted to overthrow the government. They wanted fascism. But Vietnam produced a powerful narrative of soldiers who were wronged and betrayed by the U.S. government. It doesn't mean anything. Bob Steele died for these medals. Lieutenant Conroe died, so I got a medal. I got a Silver Star, Purple Heart, Army Commendation Medal, eight Air Medals, National Defense, and the rest of this garbage. It doesn't mean a thing. And that story, it started to connect these groups. So in the years after the war, all these different far-right extremist groups start to coalesce around this feeling. And they use this narrative to mobilize people for their own violent anti-government agenda to join their cause. And then in the 1990s, it all dovetails with the rise of the militia movement. That movement now includes so-called militia or patriot groups that function in at least 30 states, many conducting paramilitary training. Now, the militia movement is bigger than the white power movement. If we were going to do a Venn diagram, we would have a big circle of militia activity with a smaller circle of white power movement activity inside of it. Do you think that this reemergence also coincides with another major American war? The Gulf War happens. Absolutely. Just a quick refresher, because the U.S. government is involved in a lot of wars. The Gulf War. It started in 1990. Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in a bid to gain control over their oil supply. Uh, and uh, as far as the eye can see, this tracer fire continues and the explosions continue to erupt. Obviously, something is underway here. 
The U.S. responded with a swift bombing campaign and a ground invasion. We start to see the Gulf War shaping people, um, much in the same way that the Vietnam War shaped people. So it's the 90s. Veterans return home, once again with combat experience, and sometimes with anger and frustration, a sense of betrayal. And obviously, you know, Timothy McVeigh, who would go on to be an incredibly infamous veteran, served in the Gulf War. And then, in 2001, the U.S. first invades Afghanistan. Then, about a year and a half after that, Iraq. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. And you can know that our forces will be coming home as soon as their work is done. And this so-called war on terror goes on for 20 years. What were you looking for when you got out? Did you need something? Once I got out, my life plan was, was gone. The only thing I could think about was, you know, what am I doing today and what am I doing tonight? What am I doing today and what am I doing tonight? What am I doing today and what am I doing tonight? What am I doing today? I'm, you know, trying to have fun, see friends if I can. What am I doing tonight? I'm getting shit-faced. That's all I did for fucking months. How'd you feel about the government? I was pissed, man. This is Chris Goldsmith. He's an Iraqi war vet. He says the military was just part of who he was growing up. Every, like, childhood photo of me, of a birthday party, of a family reunion, I'm, like, either wearing camouflage and dog tags around my neck or a Boy Scout uniform. My Uncle Lou, like, big belly, like, riding Harley kind of guy, he used to wear these thick, like, three-inch wide American flag suspenders. And one of my earliest memories as a kid was towards the end of Desert Storm. There had been a small army base in my town. And I just remember seeing, like, the yellow ribbons around the trees in front of houses and then, like, the parades at the end. And I was just like, man, this is, this is incredible. Some of the men in Goldsmith's family had served in World War II. He remembers them calling it the Good War. And then, when Goldsmith is 16, 9-11 happens. I personally didn't lose anyone that day, but it felt like everyone I knew did. He's from Long Island, and so the attack felt pretty close to home. And I didn't realize this at the time, and this is, you know, lots of therapy post-military, thinking back on the way that, like, I've, I've looked at the world. It's where I went from wanting to serve my country to wanting to kill for my country, which are two totally, totally different things. And a lot of my friends, who joined the military around the same time, like, we joined with revenge as, as a motivating factor. We wanted to go out and get the bad guys. By his senior year of high school, Goldsmith has this vision of the war, what a lot of American TV networks were showing. Shots of Iraqis welcoming soldiers, waving American flags. But by the time he's deployed, the war's been going on for years, and the U.S. military has done truly awful things like the torture and abuse of Iraqi detainees at Abu Ghraib. So when I got to Iraq in January of 2005 and kids are standing on the side of the road throwing bricks at me, I was like, what the fuck? This is like, this is not what I expected. They fucking hated us. 
Goldsmith's job in the military is to document the casualties of war, the people killed by militant groups. I'm taking close-up photos of the faces of each individual that we're pulling out of the ground. He's 19, and he's taking photo after photo of mass graves. This is not going well. Yeah. For you personally. You're not liking this. You're being put through some pretty traumatic events for Mm -hmm. your job that you're not being equipped to handle. By this point, I'm like, I fucking hate the army. I want to get out as soon as I can. And uh, I felt stuck. So it's 2007. He's only got a few months left of his deployment. And President Bush announces that more troops will be sent to Iraq. And Goldsmith learns that he's been designated stop loss, meaning that he's set to be redeployed again, almost immediately. So the same week that I was supposed to get out of the military, according to my contract, I would instead be deploying to Iraq for a year and a half. And that's when things started to really spin out of control for me. So Goldsmith is back in the States for a bit between deployments, and he starts drinking heavily. I was, like, drinking a handle of vodka, like, plastic bottle, shitty vodka, every night. And I would, like, I'd vomit and and keep drinking. He's going through intense symptoms of PTSD. But he doesn't know that. At the time, he doesn't even know what the acronym PTSD stands for. It wasn't part of the American lexicon. We weren't talking about PTSD. He tries to get help at the base where he's stationed in Georgia. Like, they've been telling us if we want to get help, like, here's where it is. A double-wide trailer behind a sign that says something like Behavioral Health Clinic. He's passed it a million times, but never gone in. He finally does. Looks like a scene out of The Walking Dead. Tables knocked over, like, just completely dilapidated, had clearly fucking been abandoned. And I was like, oh, shit, it's a fucking lie. At this point, Goldsmith says he's so low that he attempts to end his life. And when his commanding officer finds out, they decide his suicide attempt is a reason to give him a general discharge to kick him out of the military. And this kind of discharge, it means that Goldsmith loses access to some veterans' benefits, like the GI Bill, which helps vets go to college. And he isn't welcome at some mainstream veterans' organizations, like the American Legion. I lost access to, like, the regular veterans community, but uh, that inserted me into the community of radicals. Goldsmith goes home. He's back at his parents' house on Long Island, sleeping in his childhood bedroom. He's got no job. He's still drinking a lot, getting into bar fights. All I fucking did was was watch YouTube. And learning about conspiracy theories online. Like, I would make 200 copies of a DVD, which took forever, and then walk around in the middle of the night and drop them off in mailboxes. He's falling deeper and deeper down the conspiracy rabbit hole. And he starts moving around, couch surfing, and he gets really involved with a group of anti-war vets. That organization was at once immensely helpful in terms of helping me process my pain and anger and shit, but it was also like 
really fucking not healthy because I was surrounded by people who were also as angry and as damaged as I was. And it was the first time that I was introduced to, you know, what now as a researcher I consider extremism. The people he's meeting were a mix. Goldsmith says there were vets who had far left ideas and other veterans with far right ideas. And some were forming informal far right militia groups that a few years later would turn into groups like the Oath Keepers. He says the people in those militia groups openly talked about conspiracy theories, building bunkers, filling their homes with arsenals of weapons, preparing themselves against potential FBI raids. But for him, being exposed to both sides of the political spectrum gave him some degree of perspective. Knowing myself, and as vulnerable as I was, if I had only been exposed to one side of that, I probably would have fucking ended up in the Oath Keepers. Like, you know, the government fucked my life up in a really big and personal kind of way, so like, I get it. At this point, Goldsmith's struggling to reintegrate into society. He's been stripped of certain benefits and access to some veterans' social clubs. But he does have access to healthcare, provided by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the VA. And he says that helps him to do two crucial things. First, he finds a therapist there who he trusts. I remember going to the VA hospital in like a crisis. I would show up and ask to speak to my doc. He would skip lunch and we would sit down and talk it out and I would feel better. And second, a social worker at the VA tells him there's actually a program that he can apply for to help him go back to school. So he applies and eventually he enrolls at a community college. Goldsmith says this is the real turning point for him and his recovery. A few years later, Goldsmith gets into Columbia University. I finally reached a point where I could be proud of myself again. And he starts to get interested in how far extremist groups target vets for recruitment. It becomes a kind of obsession. He has a friend, another vet, who's also interested in this. And one day... My buddy calls me up and says, hey, Goldie, I, I joined a hate group. He'd infiltrated a far-right extremist group called Patriot Front. I joined a neo-Nazi group, and I want you to help me take them down. It's a big deal, because the group had been recruiting vets. According to published documents, roughly one in five applicants to Patriot Front claimed to have been soldiers. And so Goldsmith and his friend, together, they infiltrate the group, with the goal of taking them offline before the 2020 presidential election. Their work eventually goes public, and Patriot Front goes quiet for a few months. And then January 6th happens. So when it comes to January 6th and the involvement of veterans, what was your take? For me, January 6th was a pivotal moment, and, and I realized, you know, the veteran advocacy stuff that I've been doing is not going far enough. The passive research, coming up with the report, giving it to Congress, hoping the fucking FBI looks at it, um, I was like, fuck it, it's, it's time to take action. So he starts his own anti-extremism private intelligence company and a nonprofit to train other vets to do open source research. And the intent was to make it so that I would never again feel the way that I felt on January 6th, where I'm watching a fucking tragedy happen that I knew was gonna happen before it did. Because vets like Goldsmith and historians like Ballou 
they see the violence and anti-government sentiment of 20 years of war. Maya college students don't remember a time when we were not at war. It's their whole life. It's coming home. When we're dealing with something like the global war on terror, we're talking about a very small number of people serving, but over an incredibly long period of time. Some of them for tours and tours and tours, many of them over a a very long span. And what the long-term effects of these wars are, it's still not fully clear. When we're talking about such a subsumed experience of warfare, but over such a long durée, we just don't have any idea. We could be talking about wait, 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 and then there's a huge spike. We could be talking about rolling waves. We could be talking about a slow build. I don't think anybody knows. What we do know, of course, is that some radicalized veterans are already organizing and participating in these groups. So, in May, I traveled to Maine to meet a former Marine named Chris Polhouse. Because after leaving the service, he became an unabashed neo-Nazi. How are you feeling about this interview? Um, we'll see. I'm kind of like, I'm more like, let's see if this guy shows up. That's after the break. We're in a small town in rural western Maine. I'm in Maine with two of my producers, Sam Egan and Ashley Cleek. It's a warm spring day, and we're driving through these idyllic lake towns. To meet Christopher Polhouse. Polhouse wants to meet somewhere random. Doesn't want to disclose where he's staying, so we tell him to meet us at a public park right off the highway. Polhouse is known online for being provocative, for enjoying trolling leftists and Antifa members. And, like basically all neo-Nazis, for being extremely misogynistic. And so a big part of me expected that I'd show up to the interview and he wouldn't be there that the whole thing was a trick to get me and my team up here, have us spend a bunch of money and then ghost us and joke about it with his followers. Watch it be his truck. Is it? But he comes and pulls up in an oversized black pickup truck. Hey, how you doing? Good. Ben? Of course. It's your person? Nice to meet you. And what's for sure is that he dressed to make an impression. He's a massive man like over six feet tall. And he's wearing a wide-brimmed cowboy hat, black leather jacket, and black pointy cowboy boots. His shirt is unbuttoned at the top to show off a swastika tattoo in the center of his chest and a large wrought iron chain with a swastika pendant. My name's Chris Polhouse, and I say racist shit on the internet. Polhouse has become something of a neo-Nazi influencer. Would you say you're a, a leader in this movement? I think what's more important about my influence in this community isn't necessarily the people that follow me or the people that are in my group, as much as the ripple effects that those people that follow me make in the greater movement. He had thousands of followers on Telegram, and he used this online soapbox to spew racist talking points and helped organize racist protests. But I wanted to talk to him about his experience in the U.S. military. Uh, my stepdad was in the military, two different branches, my grandfather. He was a Marine for four years. I'm a poor Mississippi kid. You know, what am I going to do? I want to leave Mississippi. I want to get out of here, so join the Marine Corps. It's unclear if he was radicalized in the military or before it. But he also says he left when Barack Obama was elected because he didn't want to serve under a black commander-in-chief. No, I'm actually, the question I'm asking you is, 
because I am interested in the military side of this and how either right. it helped you, it, it actually didn't make you feel any more the way you feel now, or it was sort of this, this moment where you saw something that changed you. I say absolutely zero in that, dude. Yeah, zero. zero. Really? Neutral. Neutral? You know what I'm saying? So not nothing, but something. I know that's like, that's like the most sensational bit of this mm -hmm. is the fact that I was in the military. To be clear, I don't think it's sensational. I think his background in the military gives Polhouse power and access. He can talk and spew racist rhetoric and push for the collapse of society and also wear the badge of a former Marine. We actually talked to Polhouse for a while, but he kept contradicting himself and he didn't really say anything substantial. So anyway, I'm not gonna give him more time. What I do know from my reporting is that there's something going on with the Marine Corps and extremism. Data shows that of all the branches of the military, the most veterans who are charged or convicted of committing acts of domestic violent extremism per capita were Marines. And the Corps knows this is an issue. They've been proactive about it. They were the first branch to ban the Confederate flag from their bases. But people online haven't been so receptive. In August 2021, I wrote an article about Marines who had joined neo-Nazi groups. And you know, I usually get some pushback when reporting on the military. But this article came out right when the US was pulling out of Afghanistan, and 13 military members, including 11 Marines, were killed in a bombing at the airport in Kabul. And so this time, people really came after me online. On Twitter, I had an avalanche of thousands of messages, several telling me to kill myself and that I was a corrupt, quote, Jew. If you say anything critical about the troops, you're destroying the institution, their reputation, you're maligning them writ large. That's Heidi Barrick, an expert on the far right who used to work at the Southern Poverty Law Center. She's an OG researcher on far right extremists and neo-Nazis. There was just this like, we don't want to talk about this. Our troops are good. You're bad for bringing up problems. And she, like me, has seen how hard it can be to critique the military. But she's definitely not afraid to speak out. The other issue with 20 years of war, it's not just 20 years of war, it's 20 years of the Department of Defense not paying attention to extremists in the ranks and extremists in the ranks who then become in, in the veterans' ranks. And then in 2021, the Pentagon publicly acknowledges that extremism is a problem. When Biden came into power, he really did make it seem like the Pentagon, and the Pentagon did as well, made it seem like we're really taking this seriously. But so far, I mean, what have they done? They, they did the stand down, right, where... Um, Secretary Austin issued some guidance to the force about the directed stand down that he ordered to, uh, to address the issue of extremism in the ranks. In February of last year, the Secretary of Defense announced that for one day, the entire military was going to stop whatever they were doing and stand down to focus on one thing, the issue of extremism in the military. Specifically, he had directed commanding officers and supervisors at all levels to select a date to conduct a one-day stand down with their personnel. The stand down was supposed to be a big deal. But it was like a one-off. This is a way bigger problem. But Barrick, she thinks there's a number of obvious things the Department of Defense and the VA should change. When you are joining the military, are there rules surrounding whether or not you can be an extremist or be an extremist organization? Like, 
what what's to stop you know the garden variety white supremacist Nazi from joining the military? I mean, really, nothing. One question uh, when you sign up says, are you a member of um, a domestic terrorist organization or maybe just a terrorist organization, which I have said repeatedly is absurd because somebody who's in these movements doesn't consider themselves a terrorist, right? The question doesn't even make any sense. No. She's like, those screening questions for new recruits, unhelpful at best, ridiculous at worst. So there's basically no screening. There's no programs at any veterans organization that either warns veterans about extremist groups and that they might be trying to, you know, drag them in or that helps them once they get involved. To be clear, I spoke with Heidi Barrick back in early December 2021. And at that time, everything she's saying was the case and had been the case for decades. But then, only days after I interviewed Barrick, the Department of Defense released a report outlining the results and continuing goals of that stand-down. And many of the things Barrick had said, the military says they're trying to address them, at least to a certain degree. For example, the military says they will more clearly and thoroughly define what, quote, prohibited extremist activity is. They're partnering with the FBI to improve procedures for screening tattoos for affiliations with extremist groups. And they're changing the questions they ask new recruits. We reached out to talk to DOD or the VA, but they both declined to be interviewed. I am typically skeptical of the value of military stand downs. So I called up Sean Turner. He's a professor at Michigan State, and he worked at the VA during the standout. In this case, this wasn't just about one day in which we take a break to reflect on the challenges that we were facing. This was part of a larger effort. Turner was in the Marines for 21 years. He spent much of his career after the military studying extremism in the ranks and among veterans. And more specifically, he's looked into that vulnerable period for veterans when they first transitioned back to civilian life like what Chris Goldsmith experienced. We are now one year later from the assault on the Capitol with more than 725 defendants. It is shaping up to be the largest federal criminal investigation in U.S. history, full stop. But after January 6th, Turner says a new question came up. What about all those vets who showed up that day who'd already been out for years? Within 10 weeks, we're talking about, I think, close to 1,000 search warrants, 13, 1,500 grand jury subpoenas, 350 to 400 arrest warrants, so just a number unseen before in any probably federal district in history. And they are the folks who showed up at the Capitol on January 6th. How can you say that they are in that space of being vulnerable? Over 100 individuals with U.S. military backgrounds are facing charges as participants in the Capitol breach on January 6th. And many of them hadn't been in the military for more than a decade. In other words, Turner thinks something else is also happening. Well, what I think is happening there is that um, there are still some aspects of making veterans who have long left the military, making veterans feel through the use of misinformation that there is a brewing need to defend this country, a brewing need to uh, have people who are trained in military operations and who are true patriots to stand up against some sort of ism. Essentially, vets being used as patriotic props and a way to grow the ranks. 
despite the fact that these groups are pointedly anti-government and anti-democracy. In April of 2021, the Marine Corps admitted that it had, in the past three years alone, found 16 cases of extremism within its ranks, most of them online. And I've come across these types of guys a lot. Four people charged in a new indictment related to an alleged illegal firearms scheme with ties to a white supremacist group. Sometime in the fall of 2020, the government zeroed in on a group of men with ties to far-right extremism and the military. All charged with conspiracy to illegally manufacture guns and gun parts. Investigators say the defendants created a video that shows them with skull masks and Nazi symbols. A year later, this group was charged with planning to attack a power grid. They discussed using homemade explosives. Three of the guys implicated had been in the Marines. One had been in the National Guard. And according to court documents, one of them was charged with stealing military gear from a military base, Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. Sound familiar? Also, in the same year, another Marine plotted to kill members of the Democratic National Committee. That guy was kicked out of the Marines after an FBI investigation. And I've reported that the base also has a connection to the Marines. Mac Lamoureux and I broke the story that Marine Corps dropout Ryan Birchfield, a one-time member of the base, was deported from Ukraine. Ukraine's security services alleged that Birchfield was a member of an American neo-Nazi terror group. The list goes on and on. The Department of Defense's efforts, the stand-down, their policy changes, Turner sees value there. But even he thinks that there are still areas where they could have gone further. He tells me that there should be a policy of immediately dismissing any military personnel who's been identified as being involved in far-right extremism. But he knows from experience that big change in the military tends to be slow. He uses the word methodical. Me, I'd say reluctant. Why do you think it took the military so long to admit that extremism, you know, in and after service is a problem? Well, I think that what we've seen in the past several years is a more public airing of the challenge that we're seeing in the military. And I think that what we're finding is that people are a little surprised to find veterans and service members are disproportionately represented uh, in these groups. And then, more than a year after the Pentagon announced the stand-down, a Senate committee requested that the Department of Defense stop its new anti-extremism initiatives. Every Democrat on the committee voted against this recommendation, while every voting Republican voted for it. They wrote that it was a poor use of taxpayers' dollars to, quote, combat exceptionally rare instances of extremism in the military. I think that there's a bit of a taboo in our country in terms of looking at this type of issue of critiquing the military, you know, especially veterans. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if sometimes the inability to critique them or criticize yeah. this, is that yeah. not kind of letting them down and preventing us from addressing certain issues that they face when they exit, whether it be the potential for joining an extremist group or, you know, other issues relating to PTSD? One of the great things about being a veteran in the United States is that the American people have bestowed on us a degree of respect and um, in many cases, a degree of admiration. Uh, 
And so for me, when I look at what happened on January 6th, and I look at the veterans in that crowd, my time serving in Iraq, and when I think about all of that, and I think about what these individuals who are involved in these groups are doing to destroy that, to take that away from all the rest of us, it makes me angry. Um, and so I, I think that we are coming into a time when that respect and admiration, it may shift. It may begin to change. All the data I've seen suggests that this problem, far-right extremist groups targeting vets, it's only growing. I knew the base was specifically looking for people with military training. And while the threat these groups pose is the single most significant domestic terrorist threat we've ever faced in our lifetimes, it's important to understand that they are also connected to international neo-Nazi terror networks. The Azov Special Operations Detachment is a right-wing neo-Nazi band of soldiers. And right now, a lot of far-right extremists and neo-Nazis are showing up in an active combat zone where they're trying to hone their military skills and grow their networks. So I'm just walking the streets of Lviv, and it's quite a peaceful place right now, but there's a real intensity to it. You know, people are very nervous. There's a lot of, like, lineups for buying weapons, and people are, you know, wearing military fatigues, and soldiers are everywhere. The war in Ukraine. That's next time on American Terror. American Terror is a Spotify original podcast from Vice Audio and Gimlet Media. It's reported by me, Ben Maku, as well as Mac Lamara, Ashley Cleek, Sam Egan, Sophie Kazis, and Zachary Kamel. It's produced by Sam Egan and Sophie Kazis, and executive produced by Ashley Cleek, and by Colin Campbell and Nicole Beamsterboer from Gimlet. Sound design and original music composition by Pran Bandy. Editing by Kate Osborne from Vice Audio and Brendan Klinkenberg from Gimlet. Janet Lee is the Senior Production Manager at Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Maximo Anderson and Nicole Pasulka. Joshua Fisher-Birch was our expert consultant. Special thanks to Katie Sheward, Miguel Fernandez-Flores, Anna Sebeskin, Mac Lamara, Tim Marchman, Josh Visser, Kisa White, and The Infiltrator for risking his life to bring this story to the public. I'm Ben Maku.